Okay, well, let's make your way and, and grab a seat and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as we, can study, or we continue our study through um, the New Testament and through the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's interesting to see the parallel, as we kind of mentioned last week, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, we, in chapter 3, Paul is writing to the church that is in Corinth, and he's dealing with the issue of carnality. Carnality, um, he's addressing different um, sin that has come up in the church. And, and we're, we find ourselves, as we're just going through the book of Corinthians, how does Paul address the issues in the church? And, and in particular, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians, if you look back at chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, you see there where Paul is dealing with things such as envy, strife, divisions among the body of the church. Now, nobody here has ever been in contention or a division with somebody else, right? I know. Never family fights. Never mad at anybody else in the church. You've ne- we've, we never have envied uh, other things that people have or a position that God has put them in. And I say that sarcastically. I can do that because Paul uses sarcasm in chapter four. So I was joking with Olivia. I was being real sarcastic with her this morning. Uh, and I was just like, I'm being biblical. Paul did it so I can do it with you. Um, but anyways, yeah, you guys, this is, you guys are not laughing this morning. But Paul's, Paul's dealing with divisions, right? Because they were, they were following uh, uh, different pastors. Some said, well, um, man, Tim's preaching, but, but when this person's preaching, I'm not going to go. I don't, I don't care. I don't want to, I don't like what they have to say. I don't like the way that they preach. And, and they made much of the preacher and they were making um, little of Christ. See, their carnality has led to this. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, uh, verse 1, Paul describes the Corinthians as um, their carnality is the root of the problem in the church. So the division, the envy, the strife, things that have come up are just issues of the heart. And it's interesting as we look at this. See, the church we know, of course, written to Corinth, Corinth being a city, the church was in Corinth, but as we've been talking about, Corinth was really in the church. The world, the influence, what was ruling and reigning in the church. And we keep mentioning this term carnality or carnal, but, but what does that mean? What does that actually look like? Um, well, you might think a simple way to put it is carnal or carnivore, right? Simply means that there would be an animal or somebody loves meat, they, they like, I'm a carnivorous man, right? I have to eat my steak and meat and potatoes and forget the keto diets and all that stuff. No, I have to have meat. There's, there's the, that's the idea of flesh, right? Carnal. So when he's describing or he's talking about somebody that's carnal, he's simply speaking of, as Romans 8, 5 tells us, as one who lives according to the flesh, who sets their mind on the things of the flesh. That's what the Bible says, a carnal person carnal person is, or fleshly person. Well, if we keep looking at that, see, this breaks down even more. There can be two types of carnal people. Number one, there can be a carnal person who just simply means that you're outside of Christ. You're still under the rule, under the reign, under the realm of the flesh, right? That's all of us. That's us in Adam, See, we're under the rule and the reign of sin. And until we give our lives to Christ and we're a new creation in Christ, we're carnal men and women. 
the flesh reigns and rules over us. You say, well, how, how do you know that's true? Well, think about this. Before you were um, saved, did we have any power to change the habits or, or, or the, the sin tendencies in our lives? No. Because the flesh ruled us. We were under its reign. We were carnal. So there's one. Carnal, so carnal person, carnal person being, it sounded like I said colonel, not a colonel person. Carnal person being that man or a woman who is outside of Christ. Number two, a carnal person can be those who are in Christ but are still under the influence and still giving themselves over to the flesh. Well, well what do we mean by that? Giving, giving over to the flesh. The, the flesh, the things of this world are their top priority. You know, well, man, I'm just so concerned only about money or, or, or um, looking a certain way or, or striving to a position of power or, you know, all, I, all I'm concerned about is what's for lunch after, after Xander gets done today. I can't wait for it. Right? None of us ever sit here and do that. But, but a carnal, so there can be a carnal, carnal Christian where we're still, we're in Christ, right? But we're not yielded to Christ yet. We're not yielding ourselves to the Spirit, just simply giving ourselves, presenting ourselves to Him. And we're still um, letting the flesh rule and reign us. And Paul would say in Romans, um, he would say, reckon yourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. And so he's addressing carnal Christians. Carnal Christians. Now think about this. You can, not only can a carnal Christian be one who is continually giving over to the flesh, Right? But it can be somebody who's a Christian but still trying to please God in the power of the flesh. Well, I'm, I'm going to serve, man. I'm going to do VBS. I'm going to do community day. I'm going to do the donut ministry, and, and I'm just, I'm going to rock it out. And then, and then when uh, the church, you come here and the church isn't unlocked or somebody who said uh, that they would help you doesn't help you to show, they don't show up to help you and you get all frustrated and you're like, I'm quitting. I can't do this, right? We're still operating in the power of the flesh. So, we can evaluate and test our own hearts, man. Is that any of us, or am I falling into any of those categories? Am I outside of Christ? I'm still under the realm, the rule of the flesh. Am I a carnal Christian living for the flesh? All, all about the temporal, the here and now? Or am I trying to strive to please God in the flesh, which is really just legalism, right? So there's these different questions that we can ask ourselves. But we have to also look at what is so bad at about carnality? What's so bad about worrying about money or, or being so concerned about this or that? Because they're real needs, right? Well, in the Bible, in Romans 8, I'm not making this up, Paul says also in chapter, chapter 8, verse 6, he says there that those who are carnal or carnality is death. It leads to death. Now think about this. Outside of Christ, when we're still under the rule and the, the reign of sin, What's the end for that man or that woman? Well, the Bible tells us that it's death. Unless we're in Christ, or unless our sins have been washed away, Romans 8, 6 tells us that the carnal person leads to death. But not only that, if, if I'm still a Christian, right, and I'm still um, yielding over to the flesh and, and yielding to sin, right, there can then be death in terms of my relationship with God, Man, sin separates us from God. Of course, I'm forgiven, but if I'm harboring sin in my life, God won't bless that. 
and I can't experience the fullness of all that God would have for me. Or think about even relationships practically, right? There's death in relationships. Pride destroys relationships. Lying destroys relationships. So there's just this death that, that is arising, and we see that in the Corinthians. There's death in the terms of division, and they're so concerned about um, their pastors, they're following a certain pastor, that, that they even would tend to cut down somebody else. Do you realize that that's what happens? When I try to lift somebody up because I'm putting them above someone else, it's going to be inevitable. I'm cutting that other person down, which is really killing them, right? Well, I don't like them because of the way they talk or I say bad things about them. But there's death. Now, it's interesting so the flesh promises, the, the, the carnal nature promises, and, and, it, and it tells us, it whispers in our ear that it will satisfy, doesn't it? There, there is. There's that, there's that pull, man, that still appeals to our flesh that says, just gratify me, live in the flesh, and, and the longing that you desire will be satisfied. But we know that that's not true. How so? Well, I love that the Bible I love as a pastor, um, I don't have to think of like illustrations to, because uh, I'm not creative at all. Like I'm very, um, follow the book, right? right? I'm very methodical. I, I'm, Olivia's, Olivia's artsy, I'm not. You just tell me what to do and I'll get it done. So I'm horrible at like, thinking of illustrations. But if we just simply look at the Bible, God gives us it's his own illustrations. Because if we, an example of this is found as we've been looking in the book of Numbers. So God has brought his people out. And remember, what did they start to do? They started to murmur. They started to complain. They started to say, oh man, take us back to Egypt. We had it so good there. The leeks and the onions, right? All all the things that appeal to the flesh. I want to go back. I want to go under there. I I I desire that. Man, this desert, what, the life that now that you've called me out to, Lord, it's not rainbow and sunshines. It's hard. And they desired to go back. They, 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 they were walking in the flesh still. And so what happened to that generation that came out of Egypt? They wandered for 40 years and they all died, right? Those under 20 all died and only Caleb and Jacob um, were allowed to enter in. So do you see how the carnal life leads to death? And the Bible shows us that in the Old Testament. Well, not only that, not only does it lead to death, but it leads to no satisfaction. Well, in in Psalm 106, the psalmist says there, describing Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness, that God gave them the desires of the flesh, of their heart, the leeks, the onions, the quail that they desired, the meat, right, the carnality, but he sent leanness to their soul. So even, you know, as we, if, if we're walking in the flesh, God will, might allow us to have those things, but there will be a leanness to our soul, to the spiritual, what really matters, what really satisfies. And so I'm encouraged, I'm, I'm going through all this, and I'm taking our time looking at this and explaining it, because I think that it's not, I think, it is relevant for us today. There's still a tendency for those um, today in 2021 to be in church, to be in Christ, to be saved, but still to be walking in the flesh. There's still division. There's still envy. There's still strife that comes up today, and it happens in our body, and it happens in each church. But the Lord would have for us, he'd rather deal with his children in love like we've been talking about 
that we might be healthy and that we might be whole. And so that's why we're going to keep, as we keep looking at this, uh, that's my prayer. So there's the carnal person. Now let's compare that to the spiritual person. Because the Bible also tells us that there's those who walk after the Spirit. There's those who walk after the flesh. We've just talked about that. Those who walk after the Spirit. Well, Jesus says in Romans, or excuse me, Paul says in Romans 8, 5, he says that for those who, who are after the Spirit, they mind the things of the Spirit. They mind the things of the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that um, you're telling me then, like day to day, I can't go to my secular job? I can't go there, and I, and I shouldn't be making a living. I shouldn't be thinking about what I'm going to be making for dinner. I can't enjoy um, the boat or, or go golfing. I can't enjoy these things because they're not spiritual. Well, no, that's not what the Bible's saying. What Paul means when he's calling us to mind the things of the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to yield ourselves to the Spirit, it means that we're simply to have the gospel always in mind as the end goal. The gospel is always to be in mind. One pastor said it this way. He says, your value system has changed. And this change touches everything that you do. The important thing that is that in seeking to fulfill your needs, right? The, the, I have to eat. I have to make a living. We're allowed to enjoy ourselves. God's given us nature to enjoy and family to enjoy, friends to enjoy, whatever it may be. That as we seek to um, fulfill our needs, that God be glorified. And it does not remove you from life, but it puts you back into life, but with a different point of view now. Do you see that? See, the, the man or the woman who's minding the things of the Spirit says, well, I'll, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to do my best because then when someone asks me, I can say I'm doing it as unto the Lord. Or I'll go and I'll go boating, I'll go golfing, and instead of tearing down or when they start to gossip, I'll step in and say we're not going to do that. Because it's not, it's simply not right in the eyes of the Lord. You you're always mind, have the gospel as the end goal, that God would be glorified. He, because he saved us to enjoy his presence, to enjoy his glory again. In fact, in, in Isaiah 43, you know that the Bible says, um, there it says that he has created us for his glory, right? And so this is the man or the woman that, that is walking after the Spirit. And in Romans 8, 7 then, Paul says that this person, that walking in the Spirit leads to life and peace. There's life. There's substance to our life. We can enjoy a relationship with God. There's peace. I'm at peace with God because I know that, that I'm not harboring sin that I'm not allowing these things in. I know who I am. I'm in Christ, right? I've been forgiven. I'm not a, at war with God anymore. It's a life of peace. And that's the fruit of it. Eternal life, even. And so, all of this leads us to continue in chapter 4 this morning, where we pick up, and, and, and we've kind of laid out the situation of, of where Paul is. Paul is, so he's still addressing that, the church and the carnality, the division and the striving that's in it. So three things, if, you, if you're a note taker, that you can write down. How we're going to, just a quick outline of this chapter. In verses 1 through 5, we're going to look at, Paul's going to give us a pro proper perspective of ministers. That's verses 1 through 5 as Paul deals with carnality. The proper perspective of ministers. In verses 6 through 13, he then gives us a proper perspective. He gives the Corinthians a proper perspective of themselves. And then finally, in verses uh, 14 through 21, Paul gives us a proper perspective of his heart. 
So in, it's interesting if you look at it, Paul's saying what, in high level, take a step back here, what, what's he doing? See, their carnality, their pride that has entered in has caused the divisions and the strives. And he says, this is how we deal with it. We look at what God says. Here's what God says, a proper perspective on ministers because they're holding them up wrongly. Here's in reality a reflection what the word of God says about yourselves, Corinthians, of the state that you're actually in. And then finally, here's my heart behind it all. And so, starting with uh, verse 1 through 5, where we look at a proper perspective of ministers, we read there, Paul says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So, this carnality has led to a distorted view of ministers, and particularly of Paul and Apollos. And that's what happens, right? Uh, the flesh enters in and, and it puffs up and I get so deceived. And he says that this is how you're to consider teachers of the word. So whether you're in Sunday school, whether you're up here, wherever you're teaching the word of God, this is what we're to look at them as. He calls, he says that they're servants of Christ. And that word servant actually means an under rower. And so for, for the context of the time, think of like the large Roman ships and, and what they would have is that in the bottom, the most bottom deck of the ship, there would be a bunch of men on each side, and they would have these just oars, and they would just be there to row at the order of the one, um, the, whoever was in charge of all of them. He said, you know, the left side go, uh, go faster so they could turn certain ways. And he, he says that the servants, the ministers of the word of God, they're, they're to be considered under rowers. Now, it's interesting See, they're called to, called servants of Christ. They're called to serve the church. And a, and a pastor, a teacher is called to serve the church, but note this, the church is not their master. The pastor, teachers are not to, to just please and live to please for the, um, what the church wants them to do. They're to serve the church, but God is their master. And how many pastors, how many teachers today are more concerned about pleasing men than pleasing the Lord? And it destroys the church. But God is our master. See, a pastor, a, a teacher, someone who's a minister is not to be put on a pedestal. You're not to hold us up. We're mere men. We're not stars. We're not to be rock stars. And in fact, in Revelation, it says that Jesus is the morning star. He's the star. Don't hold us up on a pedestal. Of course, yes, we're to be held to a higher standard. The Bible does teach that. But it's not out of fame. It's not out of pride. None of that. Do, I, do we have a carnal view of, of teachers and ministers? If, if we're in that position, do I see myself as simply an under rower, under rower here to serve what God calls us to do as the church? And by the way, just because if God's calling us to serve the church, right? Then don't be upset when God put us in a position and he asks us to do something. Of course, you can come to us and, and tell us things that bother you of issues, whatever it's going on. But ultimately, we're, we're to do what God calls us to do. And so he gives a proper perspective of ministers. And he, he continues, again, a teacher. He says that they're servants of Christ and they're stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Now, a steward is a person who administers the affairs of a house. Think about it. Uh, and again, another picture that's great in the Bible. Remember Joseph? He says that Joseph, he was sold it by his brothers into slavery. He said, look at my big coat that I have, right? Colorful coat. And uh, I always, now, now, now that I'm older, I always think about this. My mom said that um, if I don't, if I keep misbehaving, that she'd sell me to the gypsies or she'd give me to the gypsies. And that's what happened to Joseph, right? As the, these travelers were coming, um, his brothers sold him to him. They took him down and God used it. But anyways, in, um, he, he was in charge. He was the administrator of all the affairs um, of Potiphar. Potiphar says he didn't even know everything, all the riches that he had. And Joseph was put in charge to make, take care of, you know, make sure that, that the needs over there, you know, the barn's fixed and, and they have enough food over here. There's enough workers there. He's, he's to administer it, to make sure it all, and, and, and he's to be faithful in it. And that's the picture there. They're responsible how, for how the funds are managed. And uh, teachers, the ministers are to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Well, remember, if you go to the left, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, it tells us, Paul already addressed this. He said, but we speak the wisdom of God, verse 7, in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God, which, or excuse me, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages um, for our glory. So what is he saying there is that, again, the mysteries of God, the hidden wisdom of God, and what is that speaking of? Simply Jesus, Right? He, he's talking about that which was once concealed but now revealed. It's not, see, don't be uh, deceived. It's not like some weird mystery which only I can understand or which only you can understand or this person. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the mystery of God is, is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, right, is the gospel concealed. It's, it's in pictures and shadows. Uh, in the New Testament is the gospel revealed, Jesus, right? Come in the flesh. Behold the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. So we're to be stewards of the mysteries of God. So we're to be faithful teachers, ministers, are to be faithful with the word of God. Now think about this. A steward was not to give, didn't have to give of his own wealth as he was administering the affairs of a house, but he was to take the wealth of his master and to be faithful to give it out in the right way. And that's what teachers of the word are to do. Not to scheme, not to make up what they think, not to give of their opinions, not to come up with, you know, this, this great, uh, uh, from the world's perspective, this, I don't know, crafty pep talk, but we're to be faithful in giving the word of God. And so do you see do you see how, what this does? He's cutting at what the heart of the, uh, of the uh, issue in, at Corinth. They said, well, Paul or Apollos, man, they're so eloquent. They could talk so nice. They came up with these nice phrases, and it was just so captivated and entertaining, whatever it may be. You know, it was very attractive at that time in the Greek culture for the wisdom of the world. And, and they held that up. And Paul says, no, 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 it's not that. Look, they're to be faithful. This is what you're con consider when evaluating a minister, is that are they faithful to give the word of God? And same for us. But verse 2, he says they're to be found faithful, right? That God can entrust that what he has given in his word will be faithfully then given out. 
Now check this. In verse, in verse um, 3 through 5 there, he, he says that here's the proper judgment of ministers. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Verse 5, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of their hearts. For each one's praise will come from God. So what is he saying here? See, the pride in, in the Corinthians had led them to think that they're like God and to judge the ministers, right? To judge Apollos and Paul. And Paul's saying in verse 3 that he wasn't concerned with what the Corinthians thought. And he's saying that in a good way, right? Because some of them were, were um, holding Paul up in high esteem. He's saying, I'm, I don't even care about that. Because I know that God will judge, and God is the only judge. He was concerned with pleasing the Lord. And so, just being honest, there, you know, in ministry and being in a, in, in a position of leadership, there's this tendency, it's so easy to want to please man. And it's so easy to not want to say something to upset somebody, or, or not to have this group over here get upset at you. But we need to realize that as God calls you and as you minister, even not just in ministry formally, but your life, you're called to please the Lord. And you will never be ashamed. You will never regret pleasing God. You never will. In verse 4, he says that what he's saying that is he's examining his own heart, his own life, and he doesn't, he, there's nothing, there's no sin that he's harboring. Right? He, can, he can say that I can, I can examine my heart and there's nothing, um, n- no sin that's there. But he's also saying he realizes that he can't trust his own judgment. He knows the deceitfulness of our hearts, as Jeremiah tells us. And so in verse 5 then, wh- he's, saying, he's not saying that we're not to judge the fruit of people's lives. There's, you know, some may say, well, the Bible says, judge not that you be not judged. Well, that's not what that's not, it's taking it out of context. The Bible's saying that we're not to judge the motives of people's heart. We're not to judge the motives of others. In fact, um, he says, he refers to one day that we're going to be judged by the Lord. He's referring to 2 Corinthians 5.10, which is the Bema Seat judgment. Now there's two judgments that the Bible speaks about. There's the white throne judgment, right? For the unbelievers, and then there's the Bema Seat judgment. You don't want to be at the White Throne judgment, by the way. Uh, and then there's the Bema Seat judgment that, that we're going to look at in 2 Corinthians. But that's where God judges um, what he's given to us. Have I been faithful? What were my motives? Did I do it just to be seen, to get, to get a pat on the back by somebody else? Was it so that you would think highly of me? God judges our hearts. He sees. And so, the, you know, that, that's a great question. What is my motive? Knowing that, you know, and my friend Paul might not know my motive, but God does. God sees. Lord, give us pure hearts. So he wasn't concerned about pleasing man. He says, I can faithfully come. And even think about this, Paul's writing a hard and a difficult thing to the Corinthians, but he could do it because he wasn't concerned if they got mad or upset at him. And we need that today, speaking the truth in love not shying back from what the Bible says, 
So he gives us a proper perspective on ministers, that we're to please God and that we will be judged by God and not to hold the judgment of man. Don't worry about that. So then jumping down to the next section there, verses 6 through 13, Paul, see, he addresses, and, and he wants them to have a proper perspective of themselves. Their pride had deceived them. The carnality had deceived them. It has led them to a distorted view of themselves. One pastor said it this way. See, the Corinthian church, they, they perceived themselves as mature, as godly, when in actuality, they were immature baby Christians and ungodly. Their own pride had blinded them to their true spiritual condition. And so it's interesting, hold on to this. Don't be discouraged because in the last section of this chapter, we're going to see and hear Paul's heart, which he says he calls them beloved children. So he's doing this in love. But I'm so thankful that the Bible does this, right? The Bible, we can look into it and, and we can, and it's a reflection where we can see our, ourselves. You know, I might be able to, to hide my heart from somebody else. I might not, they might not know my motives. They might not know, um, everything that's within me, but as I open the word of God, I can see my true condition, can't I? God tests my motives. The word of God is pure. It's pure. And, and, and as I come to a, a pure word, right, the, God uses his word to wash us and to cleanse us. And that's what Paul's doing. He, he uses a little bit of sarcasm here to help them to see it. So check this out, verse 6, he says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. So he's saying, essentially what he's saying here is that he's, he's using himself and Apollos as an example for them. But he says, and you might note this, that they may, not, they may learn not to think beyond what is written. And that's what the problem of the Corinthians were. They thought beyond what was written. And what do we mean by that? Well, to quote Jack Arnold, a, a pastor, he says, um, the, they, the Corinthians, were not to think of the leaders above that which was written in the Old Testament. So do you see why he started out with giving us a proper perspective of ministers, of teachers? You're not to think of them beyond what God had, has already told us about them in the word. Uh, but going back to Jack Arnold, he says, they were not to think above that which was written in the Old Testament where worldly wisdom was considered folly and all of God's ministers are called servants. We should never glory in God's leaders because God is a jealous God who will not share his glory with any mere man. So he's saying this, look, the issue is that you are thinking um, of those whom God has given as your leaders outside of what the Bible says about them. They were, they were holding up the worldly wisdom and the leaders that value, looking at their leaders that way. And we should be cautious, again, like I mentioned, um, to, know, to think that we know better than the wisdom of God. To think that I can go beyond what the word of God says in my own life, that I go beyond what is written. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, I know that the Bible says um, that, that I shouldn't look at um, pornography or whatever it is, but it's okay. It's not going to hurt. 
Or I know that I shouldn't be gossiping, but it's okay. I, I know that I should be leading my family in devotions. I know that I should be in the word of God. I know that I should be, whatever it is, you, can, you just insert it. Whatever God's, you, you know what it is. See, when I do that, I, I go beyond and I say that I know better than God. That's pride, isn't it? To say that I know better than God. And it's a dangerous place to go. And eventually, the Bible says that our sin will find us out. It's not God chasing us down and punishing us. But our sin will find us out. And so to be beware of that, examine my own life. I'm to examine my own life then. Is there any area where I'm going beyond and I say that I know better than God? I don't have to obey his word in this area. I don't have to take him seriously. Beware of that. But not only that, think about the wisdom of God in terms of the gospel. Well, I don't need the gospel. I don't need my sins forgiven. I don't need Jesus Christ. I don't need to go to church. That's just a bunch of feel-good motivational speaking. Well, no, that's not what the word of God says. So, Beware of that pride. But he continues at at the end of verse 6. He says, If you go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. Again, that's what it led to, being puffed up or pride. Verse 7, for who, you might note this, there's three, three questions that Paul, or two questions that Paul asked. Verse 7, he says, who makes you differ from another? So the first one, he says, who? Secondly, he says, what? What do you have that you did not receive? And then finally he says, now if you did not, if you indeed receive it, why do you boast as you receive it? So again, he says who? So what he's saying is that the Lord's behind the differences. Sure, you know, and and think about the body here. God has given some um, gifts to uh, people, some in the body, people, the ability to sing and play instruments. Sometimes I think that I have the ability to sing, but then my wife reminds me that, that I don't have the ability to sing. Some, we have the ability, man, just to sit in, in the gift of mercy, just to be long-suffering, to sit and be merciful. Some, the gift of giving, right? God's blessed you financially, and, and you can give. God's given different, putting you in different positions, different jobs, whether it be family situations, who made you to differ? Well, it's the Lord. And so if it's God that, that has put you in that position, why do you boast? Same with the Corinthians. If, if it's God who has called Apollos or, or Paul or whoever to be the minister, right, over you, then why are you boasting in one? It's not that person. He's taking it back. It's the Lord. There's no room to boast. So he's, he says, who? But then he says, What? He says, what, what do you have? Excuse me. Uh, yeah, what, what do you have that you did not receive? So he says there, again, if you have a gift, and remember the Corinthians, they boasted because they had all the spiritual gifts, right? So if God's given you these gifts, how can you be prideful about it? How can you boast in it? Then I have to ask myself, man, Lord, if, if you've given that to me, that, that pride so quickly and easily creeps in. Or if you've given it to that person, why would I envy what you've given to it? Because God says, do you know that God, the Bible says in Psalm 84 that God won't withhold any good thing 
from those who walk uprightly. So, Lord, if you see it good to give them that gift, you know that it's not a good thing for me. And I won't go beyond what is written, and I'll trust you. So anyways, he's dealing with this, right? What, it, what you've been given is a gift from the Lord. Think about this, the time that you've been given, the, the, just the ability to walk, man. Until you can't walk, right, you don't realize what a gift it is. Or, or maybe um, you could imp- simply even say your salvation, right? Your salvation is a gift from God. So why do I look down on those who are unsaved or maybe who are immature in Christ? There's no reason. God's given that to you. You haven't earned it. You can't boast in it. And then he, he kind of wraps it up, right, in verse 7. He says, so why do you boast? Realizing this, why do you boast? And he's going right at the heart of it, the issue. Stop, man, glorying in man. Stop glorying in yourselves. It's the Lord that's given you this, and it's for his purposes. So he, I like this section. He kind of gets into a little bit of sarcasm, and, and starting with verse 8. And he says there, he says, you are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I wish I could, I, I wish I could, excuse me, and indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. In verse 9, he continues, he says, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So the Corinthians saw themselves, in a sense, they say, well, I have, in their own view, right, their, their pride has led them to, to think of themselves as having arrived. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here. They see themselves as full in verse 7. Think about it. If they're full, they have no need for what the Lord has for them. They have no need. um, The Lord addresses another church this way in Revelation chapter 3. He says there in verse 17, um, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and and, and do not know that you are wretched, that you are miserable, poor, that you're blind and naked. So do you see there's this tendency because in in Revelation, right, that church there, they they had a material wealth. Because they said that the material is all there is, man. They consider themselves rich. I don't need anything of the spiritual. But God says, you don't even realize that you're poor, that you're blinded, that you're naked. And in the next verse, he would say, you know, come to me, and, and, I, and I will take of the clothing that I will give you, of, of, the, of my gold, of my riches, and, and it's actually, it's interesting that the church who was prideful thought that they needed not the Lord. If you keep going on in that section in Revelation, God gave the most intimate promise to them that they could be seated on the throne with him. They could be with him. But that's what the Corinthians found themselves. Man, they have it all. They have the wisdom of the world, right? They, they have material wealth. They, they, they are so full that they needed not the Lord. And that's what carnal, living, carnal Christians, right, can even fall into that. I, 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 yes, I have fire safety. I know that I'll go to heaven, but I don't, need, I don't need Bible study. I don't need to be in the Word. I don't need, need fellowship because I'm so full. And yet they don't realize that the longing, right, the leanness in their heart like we talked about in Psalm 106 is because it's the longing for the Lord and it's the longing for, for His presence, 
In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus, talking about at the, at the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. See, when I realize that I'm not full, when I'm not full of myself, and I'm not full of self-righteousness, when I realize that I'm in need, then it drives me back to the Lord. And I realize I have nothing apart from him. Not only that, but they said that they were, he says that you're kings without us. And then this is describing that high view that they had of themselves. Have you ever met anybody like that? None of you better point to me. I'm just kidding. But they have such a high view that they, they think of themselves as a king, right? Man, they'd run over people. They could just do whatever they want. They, they acted like they were kings. Paul says that he wishes that this was the case, right? Because we know, he, and he alludes to the millennial kingdom when we'll rule and reign with Christ. He says, man, I wish that was true. The attitude, the way that you're acting, the way that you think of themselves, if that's a reality, man, we'd be, in, we'd be with the Lord, ruling and reigning with him. And so he, he uses this sarcasm. But he, he then, he, he goes on then in um, verse, verse 9, and he gives them a proper view of themselves in Christ. So this is the reality. Paul says that this is, that's who you think you are. This is how you're acting. This is how you see yourself. But for those of us in Christ, look, this is the reality. He says, for I think that God has displayed us. So now Paul's talking about himself. That these, he, God has displayed us, the apostles, notice, last. As men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. What a vast comparison. Paul says, you're high and mighty. You have need of nothing. But look, I'm last. A king isn't last, is he? What he's actually referring to, many believe, is that the Romans, what they would do at that time, because they, they were the world power, right? Is that when they would go out to battle and they would conquer um, a land or a people, the army would come back in this parade. They'd be marching in, and there'd be those um, who were the last in the whole parade would be condemned to death, the prisoners. And that's what Paul's saying. In the world's perspective, right, we're prisoners condemned to death. There's nothing that I have here to live for. And, and if I'm condemned to death, then that changes the way that you live. If you knew that you were dying tomorrow, tomorrow you were condemned to death, it would change how you live today. You'd let go of the kingship. You don't care about that. Man, you'd live for the eternal. And Paul's saying that their lives are on display of this reality in the, the current world and for eternity, right? And Jesus experienced that same thing. He was rejected by the world. He was put to death. He was beaten, just like the apostles here. And then he goes on in verse 10, and he says, For we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we, are, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We labor working with our own hands, being reviled. We bless being persecuted. We endure being defamed. We entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, as an offscurring excuse me, of all things until now. So the reality of their situations is that the Corinthians had given in to the influence of the world. They wanted to be like the world, to be accepted by the world. Therefore, they weren't rejected, right? 
They weren't defamed. They weren't condemned to death. They weren't seen as prisoners. Have I strived, do I long to be accepted by the world even though I'm saved and I don't see myself as a prisoner for Christ, right? Am I prepared to, to even, right, the death sentence, not to live unto myself? But it's interesting if you compare the two, and we won't go through it for time's sake, but the world says um, fools. Paul says that in the world's eyes we're fools. But if you think about this, in Christ, he says that the fools are wise. The world says that you're weak, but the Lord says that in your weakness you're made strong. The world says that you're dishonored, that, that you would trust in a Savior that would die. What kind of Savior is that? Well, the Lord says that you will be honored because you're called a son or daughter of God. And so what Paul's trying to do here in, in just kind of summary, he's, he's, trying to, he's, he's saying take hold of, of the reality of God, who God says you are. Let that cut down the pride that you might be healthy and that you might be whole because God gives grace to the humble, right? And that's the place we want to be. So he gives them this proper perspective uh, of themselves. And then finally in verses 14 through 21, he, he shares his heart. He shares the reality of their heart. Now check this out in verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to shame you. So he knows that they might feel shamed, right? They might feel bad. Paul's not coming down on them just to make them feel bad. But look, this is why. He says, but in comparison to that, as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you, may, you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So he's not trying to embarrass them, but he's saying that it's in love that I'm writing to you. It's in love because I care for you. I consider you my beloved children. Now think about this. If you had a child or if you have a niece or one whom you love, you're not going to let them do something that is harmful for them. Or if they are doing something that's harmful for them, you're going to correct them, right? No, it's, it's okay. You can just go, you can take the fork, the metal fork, and stick it in the, the socket, uh, electrical socket. I, I, uh, I know, I know you might get mad if I tell you no, but I want you to have fun, right? No, that's unloving. Paul's saying, I'm coming to you in love. And the most selfish thing that we can do is be afraid to offend somebody because we don't want them to be mad at us. That's a love of self. But Paul's willing to be rejected by man because he loves them most. And that's what we're going to see is the heart of God. You see, because the Lord says that he loves us, that he corrects us, right? Hebrews 12, 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he corrects, and he scourges every son whom he receives. The Lord is using Paul to correct the Corinthians. Not to shame them, not to make them feel bad that they <laughs> walk away with their head between their legs, but it's in love. And Paul says in verse 16, he goes on, he says, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will, be, who will remind you of my way in Christ 
as I teach everywhere in every church. So he's saying, follow me. Now, he's not being high and mighty. Again, you might, some may say, well, I thought Paul was saying it's not about Paul. It's not about Paulus. But now he's saying, follow me. Isn't he just giving in to the division? No. Paul's saying, live after my example. He has this special relationship, right? Because he was the one that the Lord used to share the gospel. He didn't save them. It's the, it's the Lord who saves but he was the instrument whom God used. And there's this relationship, and he says, just follow me. But notice, he says, follow me, but he's not high and mighty. Remember, he just described himself as a prisoner that's condemned to death. He says, I work with my own hands to support myself. I labor. I'm dishonored. He's not coming to them in pride. He's saying, follow me in humility as I follow Christ. Now think about this. Again, if God's put you where you are to share the gospel with a workplace, your family, your friends, your neighborhood, am I willing to say, follow me as I follow Christ? Not in high-mindedness, but I think if, I, if I'm honest with myself, I, I want to shy back from saying that because then if I say, follow me, I'm held to that standard. But Paul was able to say, follow me, dads, as I lead our family, in the word of God, in purity, or, or moms, or whomever you are, student, or, or boss, or worker. And it's a high call for us. But the, I'm so encouraged that it's not me that has to do it, because the gospel, the mystery of godliness, as Timothy tells us, is that Christ came, right? And he died for us, and he now lives within us, and it's the power of God in us. We just yield ourselves to him. But am I willing to be held to that standard that I would please God? But Paul ends this um, in wrapping up in verse 18, and he says, now some are so puffed up, they're so prideful, that they say Paul won't even come. He's all talk. Man, he, his bark is, is uh, bigger than his bite is, they'd say. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not, not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love, with a spirit of gentleness? And it's interesting, Paul, he, the book of First, First Corinthians, it deals with some serious issues, as we're going to get into next week. Some, some real sin that's going on in the hearts of the church and in the people. But here we see the heart of Paul, the heart of the Lord, is for his kids to correct them in love. But he leaves them with this question. Did you notice this in verse um, 21? He says, what do you want? And I think that, not I think, that's relevant for us today. There's some of us who are still harboring maybe sin in our life. Maybe we're harboring the flesh. We're still walking in the flesh, minding the things of the flesh. And the Lord would say to us this morning, what do you want? He's asking us that, that same question. Are you willing to deal with the carnal things that I might give you the better, the spiritual, that which has worth, that's, that which satisfies? And God's heart is not coming down on us this morning. He's not to condemn us, it's not to shame us, but it's that we might be healthy, that we might be whole. 
And I can look at, you know, and I'm guilty of this, and, and God's been convicting me of some things in my own life. But we can look at, right, the Israelites in the book of Numbers and say, you were such idiots. You really were. God brought you across the Red Sea. He killed the whole Egyptian army. And then you just simply don't believe him, so you can't enter into the promised land. So you want to wander around in the hot desert for 40 years and just die off and, and live a life that's not satisfying and that's aimless. I would look at that and I say, how dumb can you be? And yet the Lord would say, okay, Xander, what about your life? Are you still concerned about the flesh? Do you not believe my word when I say, you know, get rid of the envy, get rid of the pride, get, deal with those things, not just deal with them, but let me deal with them because I love you, because I want to take you into the, the promised land, that we could live spirit-filled life, that our lives would be um, just full of the presence of God, enjoying him, that it would be radiating, right? That we would be ones who take the gospel and that others just see the Lord in us and want to know what's different and then you can share the gospel. You can share that same reality with them. But the question for each of us this morning is what do you want? The choice is up to you. See, God will deal with his children because he loves you and I know he will and he'll deal with me. But do you want him to deal with you in gentleness and the spirit of love or with the rod of correction? And it's us and it's up to each of us. And so I just think about this though, but I'm encouraged that, you know, even in all of this, I know that, you know, there's still sin that we, sh- that we may struggle with. But as I look to the, the one minister, the one who is faithful with all that God has given to him, Jesus Christ, and in Philippians 2, right, he thought it not <laughs> robbery, although he was equal with God, he humbled himself and he came as a man. He subjected himself. He, he lived among sinful flesh. He, he didn't become sin, but he lived among, subjected himself to, right, this fallen world, perfectly humble. And as I looked to him, right, he was rejected by the world. He was beaten beyond recognition. He was put to death in my place, and yet this is the one who loves us, who says, Let's, I, I want to deal with this in the privacy of your own heart. And so I don't know if uh, the worship team's coming up. I'm guessing not, because I don't see maybe Beck's back there. Are you doing a song, Beck, or no? Okay, well, Beck's going to come up. They're going to lead us in a song. And um, I just want to encourage you, when we can stand together, as, as we play this last song, Ask yourself that question, what do you want? And just meditate upon the cross because it's as we look to the cross, right, we see God's love for us. As we, see, as we look to the cross, we don't see any pride, we don't see any self-motivation, no self-gain, but we see our King, our Savior, who died in our place because he loves us. I see the love of God as I look to the cross. So let's just worship and and, and meditate upon this as we sing this last song together.